performance standards are policies that actually require a minimum level of performance by buildings. And uh, they apply to all buildings, even buildings that aren't pulling building permits. So they complement building energy codes. Uh, they apply to the 98% of buildings that aren't being built each year um, that may, if not for these laws, might do everything exactly this year as they had last year and 20 years ago. So they require that existing buildings have to improve on quantitative basis. So a building performance standard can require improvement on any metric, any performance metric that can be objectively quantified. And the ones that, that we see, there are 11 building performance standards in place around North America. And uh, a lot of those deal with greenhouse gas emissions. A lot of them deal with energy use intensity. Um, some of them deal with energy star scores. Um, they requiring that the buildings have to achieve some minimum level of performance by a set date and the performance requirements ratchet up over time. Hello friends, welcome to the Nexus podcast. I'm your host, James Dice. Each week, I fire questions at the leaders of the smart buildings industry to try to figure out where we're headed and how we can get there faster without all the marketing fluff. I'm pushing my learning to limit and I'm so glad to have you here following along. Before we get started, here's a quick note from our sponsor. As we unpacked on one of our most popular episodes ever, episode 44 with the legendary John Petsy, SkySpark is a comprehensive software platform for connecting, storing, analyzing, and visualizing data from devices and equipment systems. SkySpark's automated analytics, KPIs, energy, and greenhouse gas apps turn your data into actionable intelligence, providing improved performance, reduced downtime, and operational savings. Head over to skyfoundry.com for insightful white papers, case studies, and blog posts, as well as a link to sign up for a free demo. This episode is a conversation with Cliff Majersik, Senior Advisor at the Institute for Market Transformation, a nonprofit that's focused on regulatory and non-regulatory ways to push the economy towards decarbonization. We talked about how market transformation works, the policy levers that we in the United States have for requiring decarbonization, and finally, we dove into how building performance standards work and what building owners can expect from those laws as they spread throughout the United States and the world. So without further ado, please enjoy this episode of the Nexus Podcast with Cliff Majersik. Hello, Cliff. Welcome to the Nexus Podcast. It's great to have you here. Can you start by introducing yourself? Great to be here, James. Well, I'm Cliff Majersik. I'm the, a senior advisor to the Institute for Market Transformation. Uh, a nonprofit in Washington, D.C. that's focused on building performance as a way to fight climate change and benefit people regardless of where they live, work, and play. And um, I have been at IMT for more than 20 years now. I have worked with a variety of jurisdictions, variety of companies, you know, from the early days when we were sort of narrowly focused on energy efficiency to today when we look much more broadly at building performance and how that plays into decarbonizing the economy and uh, advancing equity across society. So it's been an interesting ride over the last 20 years, and uh, I'm excited for what the next 20 years will bring. Awesome. You might be surprised with this, but I, I would love for you to go back before those 20 years and talk about your personal background, like how'd you get into this space in general? Sure. Well, I actually had a pretty uh, wild ride getting here. 
Um, I went to Williams College, focused on political economy. And my first job out of college was working for the New York District Attorney's Office, listening to wiretaps of mafiosa. My first boss was Elliot Spitzer. Uh, and I actually testified in grand jury against um, some uh, Gambino bosses um, who uh, ultimately um, uh, had ended up um, feeling the consequences of the uh, judicial system. Um, <laughs> so I have uh, did that. I went on and, and ended up working on lobbying for uh, improved Superfund uh, toxic cleanup laws. I moved here to Washington, D.C. to do that and went on to the uh, Conservation International, where I focused on, well, actually, before that, I started an internet software company um, and um, uh, sold out of it. It was venture-backed. Uh, I went to uh, Conservation International, where we f I focused on working with um, the e-commerce industry to try to reduce the impact on um, climate and biodiversity. Uh, and uh, then I came over to IMT because I wanted to focus more on an area where I could really focus on the business case um, for improvements and energy efficiency, which was the main focus at that time. There's a really strong business case. You can get a great return on investment from focusing there. So not only does it help society, but it helps the bottom line of the companies that are seeking it. Got it. Brilliant. So um, I'd love to circle back on the software company. What was the, what kind of software did you guys build and does the company still exist? It still exists. At the time I was doing it, it was doing intranet software, um, helping companies to set up software um, to communicate internally in trade associations. We sold that off um, to a, a sort of high-flying software company. And um, then it, uh, after I left, after I cashed out, it's now focused on secure instant messaging for the Department of Defense and yeah. other sort of um, clients that need secure instant messaging. Uh, but that was not the focus at the time that I was there. Fascinating. Let's go into IMT. So Institute for Market Transformation, can you just talk about in general, what is market transformation and sort of how does it, how does it work? Sure. Market transformation is a term that came out of the utility efficiency world. So it's um, set up in contrast to like rebate payments, the things that people most often think about when they think about utility, because those um, people will do the right thing when they're getting paid to do the right thing, but often they'll continue to do whatever they were doing before once those payments go away. Mm. Market transformation is different. It's permanently changing the business cycle. It's, it's identifying ways to make things in someone's business interest to do the right thing, even when they're not getting paid to do so. So um, it uh, includes things like laws that require improvement, but also um, ways that you can restructure the market with information, you can federal line incentives, um, such that um, business will change permanently. And, and there's, you know, it's not uh, in any way at risk of backsliding if funding goes away. Uh, and so we were founded to focus on market transformation. Some of the things that we looked at are, for instance, the, the ways that property valuation didn't properly account for building performance. And by building, by valuing a property better, by reflecting its true financials, the, the revenue stream that's going to result, the risk that's uh, inherent in poor performing buildings, it just becomes a lot more profitable to invest in high performing buildings. 
uh, and we worked with the appraisal institute and um, on federal legislation to try to better align the reality of building performance with how it's valued. And, and there's been some real progress there, and there's still a lot more room for, for improvement. But that's an example of market transformation that's in no way dependent on utility or other payments. Totally. I wasn't planning on going into that, but can we talk about that for a second? How, you know, in, in terms of where buildings are at, in terms of you know, transactions, re reselling buildings, um, how often are, is building performance being taken into account today? And is there like a roadmap that you guys have that sure. kind of promotes that being part of the equation? Well, it's most basic. Um, certain parts of building performance are, are, are usually taken into account when you're talking about commercial buildings. There's a very different way of valuing a commercial building from, say, a single-family home. Um, there's, right. you know, and when you think about appraisal, which just doesn't exactly line up with the way that buyers and sellers think, but it does have some overlap. There's broadly sort of three ways to value a, a home or building. Um, there's the sales comparison approach, where you just look at similar uh, homes or, or buildings that sold and and you figure out, all right, well, let's make adjustments that are comparable, and that's how much this one's worth. That's what people usually do in single family, and that often doesn't account for building performance pretty much at all, which is a, a real uh, market barrier. Uh, and then there's the, the um, replacement cost approach. How much would it cost to sort of build this home or building again? That's the least used method. In the commercial space, the main method by far is the income approach to valuation. Yeah. Uh, and there you're looking at, you know, what's the net operating income of that building? How much cash is it throwing off every year? Uh, and that will reflect things like utility bills. It will also reflect things like vacancy rates. And we know that high-performing buildings have lower utility bills. They also have lower vacancy rates, and they have higher effective rents. Um, so it, that, that does tend to value building performance to a certain degree, but often what you have, unfortunately, is people will be like, oh, well, this building has a really, a really low vacancy rate. I'm just going to adjust that back to the mean, uh, and, and now you've just eliminated all of the benefit of this high-performing building. So it's important to understand, no, this building has a lower vacancy rate because it's a high-performing building. And you need to talk to the tenants maybe to understand that, that it's more comfortable to be in, that they're reporting their greenhouse gas emissions to their shareholders and investors, and they want to be in a high-performing building. But a lot of times, uh, buyers, investors, appraisers don't take that extra step, and they end up sort of writing off the value that's been created by this high-performing building. So we're we've been trying to educate the market um, to recognize that high-performing buildings are, are better buildings. Uh, and, you know, tenants and others say, you know, I have a high-performing company. I have high-performing employees. Why wouldn't I want to be in a high-performing building? And they're yeah. willing to pay higher rents and, and higher uh, purchase prices for those buildings. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you for that little little deep dive into that, that sort of side topic. But I'm sure there are tons of different topics that you guys produce education around um, that are just like that. Can you talk about a, a lot of this is resonating because the, that's the way sort of we at Nexus Lab sort of think about our role. How do we educate and help these, you know, long-term, you know, consistent market transformations happen? Um, you guys are obviously doing it on a, on a different, different scale. Um, the, the way that I think about the smart buildings ecosystem, which again, sort of overlaps with building performance or energy efficiency or decarbonization a little bit is that there are a bunch of different roles and we're all showing up to create that market, which must transform. Right. Um, 
So how do you think about all the different roles of all the different players inside of each sort of market ecosystem? So there's like obviously policymakers, um, utilities, building owners, technology providers, and startups. Um, how do you think about all of those people coming together to sort of make transformation happen over the long term? Well, that's exactly right. That's what we need. All of those players have important roles. Um, and um, what we need is for every step of every major decision, building performance needs to be factored in. Uh, and policy needs to uh, align. Um, you know, there are all kinds of externalities where you know, the most obvious one is carbon pollution currently in the United States. You know, there's no cost to the polluter of putting carbon pollution into the atmosphere, and that's an enormous burden that is created for the world, including the U.S. And so policy needs to uh, align incentives, address externalities, uh, and then every person in the process from, you know, the uh, initial um, person at a tenant, say, who's writing the, the specs for what space we're going to lease, they need to write in that they want a high-performing building. Then the, the realtor who's uh, showing them space where they can lease needs to be able to communicate to them and educate them about, okay, here is a high performance building, here's why it's high performance, here's how much lower the utilities will be, how much lower the greenhouse gas emissions if you're occupying this space. Um, and then the lawyers uh, who are gonna be writing that lease need to uh, understand that there's win-win opportunities, green leasing, where both the landlord and the tenant can come out ahead when they've aligned the incentive so that when the building is performing better, both of them prosper, uh, and that needs to be written into the lease. Then the, the um, property manager needs to do a job of communicating that to the tenants, existing and, and new, um, and the building engineer needs to be operating the building for maximum efficiency, uh, thinking about things like shifting load to off-peak times with lower carbon and lower prices. The utilities need to be pricing in so that um, they're rewarding building uh, occupiers and owners that are using um, electricity when it's low carbon and when it's not stringing the grid and risking, um, risking blackouts. Um, the, uh, there needs to be either the engineer on site or, or an external expert that's coming in and systematically looking at individual buildings and portfolios of buildings and finding where the best return on investment opportunities for making those improvements. And that works in, in tandem with the utilities rewarding building owners for shifting load to off-peak times. They have to have investors that are thinking about you know, what is uh, the long-term value and risk of this building and recognizing that high-performing buildings are, are lower risk buildings and, and deserve lower cap rates, which means higher value. Um, and building owners that are smart enough to, to seize all these opportunities to improve building performance, to attract and retain the most valuable tenants, to um, draw investment from investors that are far-sighted and, and you know, they have sustainability commitments of their own, their ESG funds, or just in, in, increasingly in the future, all investment is gonna be thinking about the risks inherent with long-lived assets like buildings uh, and making sure that those buildings are future-proof, that they are gonna be able to prosper in a decarbonizing economy. All of that comes together um, and you have a, you know, a huge engine for economic growth and, and climate benefit. But if any piece in that long chain is broken, and, and right now most of the pieces are broken, a lot of pieces then the are broken. Kind of breaks down, mm -hmm. and people are dramatically under underinvesting in high performance buildings as a consequence of those barriers, of those breakdowns, lack of information flow, misalignment of incentives. 
you know, externalities that, that are, have not been addressed. So there's a lot of things that need to be fixed, but the good news is that when we do fix them, it's going to unleash a, a wave of investment and, and really positive returns. And we need to see that. We need, we need to see new millionaires and billionaires being created from fixing our buildings and, and, and decarbonizing our economy. Policymakers need to recognize that. Uh, and uh, you know, entrepreneurs and innovators need to be looking sort of two or three steps down the road and positioning themselves for as the new policies and the new market realities fall into place and you get rewarded for these high performance buildings and these new technologies that are going to get us there. Wow. That's such a great, great answer. We're gonna have to chop that up into its own little, little clip, like Cliff's mic drop moment about all the different problems that need to be solved. I love that. Um, I, I love that answer too, because when I post about sort of what do we have to do? I, I like to post on LinkedIn and get a lot of feedback a lot about what do we got to do? What obstacles are there? What ideas do you have? What tactics do you have around decarbonizing buildings? And one of the things I get, there's a certain faction of the industry, a certain faction of this audience that's listening to this right now that would say, you know, regulation is our only hope, right? The only way that we're going to decarbonize buildings is if someone says they must be decarbonized or else business no longer can continue, right? And I struggle with that a little bit because it doesn't take into account all the other, I mean, you listed out just like 20 different things right there, but it doesn't take into account all the other things that are not regulatory, right? You still need the supply chain. You still need the workforce to implement it. You still need uh, like you said, someone that's deep inside the specification uh, process to make sure that this line item in the spec gets in there, right? Um, so can you talk about like, it's regulation and, I, I feel like is what I'm hearing you say. That's exactly right. It's regulation and. I mean, we know that there has been improvement. Buildings are getting better. You know, information is flowing better. Those are getting a little bit more aligned. But when you look at the bottom line, when you look at greenhouse gas emissions across the economy or across our built environment, they're moving in the right direction, but not nearly fast enough. We need to do something very different. You know, expecting that we can just do as we have done in the past and get where we need to go is, is just unrealistic. We need, a, we need a level of improvement across our entire economy that has rarely been seen in the built environment in any jurisdiction at any time. And yet we're going to need to consistently get that level of improvement every year. Uh, and so we have to pull pretty much every lever that's in front of us. And regulation is clearly one of them, but it's not enough. I mean, you can, you can write the best law in the world, and uh, the market needs to act on it. You need to have innovators that, that see the opportunities that that regulation creates, opportunities for them to provide new services and products and to prosper. You need to have you know, investors, brokers, appraisers, everybody else in the value chain needs to absorb this new reality that's created by the re regulations and by just the evolving market and look ahead and, and, and connect the dots and see all right, this asset, which we used to think was sort of top of the line, it's impaired. It's, it's not performing as well, and either it's going to have to have major improvements or it's going to have to be completely repositioned, or it's just, uh, it's just you know, a, a much less valuable asset than we used to think it was. Uh, and this other asset, which maybe was neglected, is it's a diamond in the rough, and it's much more valuable than we thought it was. And once that thinking pervades then that's going to drive billions of dollars of investment. The New York City uh, Building Performance Standard Law, Local Law 97, 
That's been projected to drive $20 billion of investment in buildings over a 10-year period. And, and that's just one city across the country. And that's gonna, there, there are going to be many, many people that will make a lot of money from owning better buildings and from providing the services and products to make buildings better. Um, so regulation is a part of the picture, but it's just, the, just one piece of a big puzzle. Totally. So now that we've sort of like set the context, I do kind of want to talk about regulation. Uh, and, and, and I think when you and I met at the Verge conference in San Jose in the fall, we, we kind of, we had the idea we were sitting at, it was kind of a serendipitous moment. It was like, I think we had met before, like a long time ago, and then we're sitting in this couch and I think both of us were just like taking a break and it was like, oh, I was like, you're Cliff. <laughs> Or whatever happened. I don't know exactly how, how it happened, but uh, it was very serendipitous to have been the conversation we had around building performance standards. And it'd be fun to talk about kind of where things are going. So before we get into building performance standards, I'd love to talk about kind of all the policy, you call them levers, all the different policy levers that we have to sort of push the market towards decarbonization. So I'm going to kind of, kind of walk us through the different ways, um, and I'll give you a chance to add to them. But, um, the first one is on energy codes and I want to start with a little like aside for people that don't understand kind of where energy codes fit. Can you talk about first mm -hmm. why energy codes matter and then get into like the status of the energy codes and kind of where we need to go? Is it a good, is it good news right now? Bad news where we need to head. But first, start off for people that like don't know why energy codes matter. Can you talk? Can you talk a little bit about that first? So, energy codes are uh, one aspect of building codes. Uh, in most jurisdictions around the country, um, there are building codes which establish sort of minimum standards for any new construction, uh, major renovations, and certain other improvements in buildings. And uh, those become, unfortunately, kind of the the standard construction um, recipe. Um, I say unfortunately because building codes establish the minimum performance that's permitted under law. And unfortunately, a lot of builders treat that as both the minimum and the maximum. They're just building to the code. Um, and energy codes um, are codes that were originally established um, you know, more than 30 years ago um, to uh, protect the occupants of buildings. Um, mostly from high utility bills. If you uh, have a really badly built building, you're going to have to pay a whole lot of money in electricity and, and often gas, and that doesn't serve anybody. And, and um, people that are buying a home or even buying a commercial building, they shouldn't have to be engineers and experts on building performance. They should have protection from the law, just like we have other consumer protections. You know, you, a car shouldn't blow up when you drive it off the, the lot. Well, nor should a building be leaking massive amounts of air and, and driving up huge utility bills and being uncomfortable. So energy codes, uh, which are uh, building energy codes, were developed to protect uh, buyers of buildings and uh, make sure that they had buildings that function properly that wouldn't be excessively expensive for them to operate. And then more recently, um, we recognize that buildings are a huge driver of greenhouse gas emissions uh, buildings um, account for more than a third of all greenhouse gas emissions in the United States. Um, and that's, uh, along with transportation, those are the two largest sectors uh, driving our greenhouse gas emissions. And, and so there's a recognition that building energy codes are an important lever for improving uh, our climate performance of our buildings and our economy. And that means that um, there's been a, a real push 
to have building energy codes, uh, pushing buildings to perform better, um, pushing towards uh, net zero carbon buildings, which uh, means in part using no fossil fuels on site, uh, minimizing the amount of electricity that you're using as well. And also in the future, and in most cases, building codes aren't doing this yet, but they are starting to do this in California, pushing towards when they are using electricity, using electricity when there's lots of low carbon electricity available. So building codes um, are incredibly important for decarbonizing the built environment, but they only apply to buildings that are newly built, uh, major renovations and, and certain other uh, changes that require building permits. Uh, and what that leaves, you know, you're, you're typically you're only adding one, two percent to your building stock every year. That leaves the other 98 percent of buildings that aren't pulling building permits that year. And that means that uh, we need to have policies that address those. And we refer to those as existing buildings. And that's where the real big money is uh, in terms of opportunities for improvement to those buildings. When you have 98% of buildings that are not addressed by building codes, that's 98% of the opportunity in many ways that is available for, for industry if you can drive improvement in those existing buildings. Yeah, and but but for those 1% to 2%, it's kind of the best time to make it happen, right? Because a lot of times when a, a building gets built, you're not, you know, the developer or the new owner after it's developed is not planning on doing a whole lot of upgrades for a while. That's um, right, and, and in fact, the best time is... If, the very beginning, the best time to think about building performance is before you've even thought about who you're going to hire to design the building. Um, you know, a best practice is to set really high standards. This We want a really high-performing building, and we're going to put that out into the RFP or anything else that you're using to select the design team, and you're only going to get design teams that know how to build high-performance because some design teams don't know how to build high-performance right. buildings. And then they're going to charge a huge premium because it's going to be change orders and trying to teach themselves as they go. But if you set the, the goals at an aspirational level from the beginning, often you can get very high performance buildings at little or, or, or no additional cost. Got it. So last thing on energy codes, how does how do you guys look at like the current status of energy codes as IMT? Like, is there still a ton of work to do there? Or is it kind of on on its way? There's still a ton of work to do. There's a ton of, we have model energy codes that are developed by you know, the International Code Council and ASHRAE, um, and those model codes are making good progress. Um, they have a long way to go still, um, and they're, uh, increasingly you have jurisdictions that are pushing to go beyond the best model codes. Um, but where the big opportunities are is lots of jurisdictions that are using you know, 10, 12-year-old model codes and um, those jurisdictions are leaving a lot of money on the table with low performing buildings that are uh, being built in compliance with the code. So they need to improve their codes. And also you have a big problem with poor enforcement and compliance with energy codes. Right. So those are the, the biggest opportunities are in raising the floor, the, the jurisdictions that have poor building codes or in rare cases, no building codes at all um, and um, having better enforcement and compliance with those codes. Got it, got it. Okay, next topic is around electrification, which is similar, right? Um, a lot of codes are requiring, and you tell me if it's similar, I guess, but my understanding is a lot of codes around the country, um, you know, municipalities close to me uh, in Denver, requiring electrification in new buildings um, or major renovations, retrofits. Um, where is that at? And kind of what's the, what's the roadmap that we need to go on there? 
Well, ultimately, we would like to see you know all new construction be all electric, um, and there are a handful of uh, of uses that may take a few years to um, make all electric in the near term, things like backup power for hospitals and that sort of thing. But uh, you do see a, a, a several jurisdictions, including places like Denver and New York City, Washington State, that through their building codes, California, are saying, look, new construction is going to have to be all electric. Um, and in, in a little bit more difficult is major renovations, but many of those jurisdictions also are requiring that major renovations, usually with a little bit of a lag, um, also are going to have to be all electric. Uh, and that's um, certainly key, but again, that leaves out 98% of buildings that have already been built. Totally. Let's pause here for one more quick word from our sponsor, and then we'll get back to the show. As we covered in our recent blog series on the five vital roles, smart buildings require engineers and engineering that allows OT and IT systems to seamlessly and securely integrate with each other and integrate with common platforms. Creating a successful building intelligence strategy entails translating the owner's goals to outcomes, use cases, intelligent building technologies, and enhanced MEP systems. To learn about what JBMB is calling MEP 3.0 and the value of building intelligence design, check out our friends at JBMB and specifically their podcast conversation with Wired Score at the link in the show notes. Okay, I guess we're going to move on then outside of that one to two percent of new buildings. Talk about existing buildings, and maybe you could tell me what the difference between these two categories. But the next two categories I had would would be benchmarking and performance standards, and some and some municipalities have them, or or you know states, uh, countries even have them as like one program, right? Um, so can you talk about those as sort of a, a category in and of themselves? Sure. So uh, benchmarking and transparency laws are, are pretty new. Um, Australia was perhaps the first, Australia and Denmark, I think, were two of the first places to, to adopt them um, back, uh, you know, 20-ish years ago. Um, and we did a, and... an episode about a year ago with um, the Neighbors program sort of talking about the, the transformation that's happened there. Yeah, Neighbors is, is the uh, Australian program, and it's been enormously successful. Uh, and it was one of the models. I helped write the first benchmarking and transparency law here in the United States uh, in Washington, D.C., which passed back in 2008. And we were looking at Denmark and Australia as, as models for how to do that. Uh, and then in rapid succession, other jurisdictions followed Washington, D.C.'s lead. And in fact, New York passed its law after D.C., but it ended up implementing its law before D.C.'s was implemented. And so New York was also very much of a trailblazer. And um, now you have, you know, 40 some jurisdictions around the country, including states like California and Washington and Colorado and Maryland and New Jersey that have these benchmarking and transparency laws. And what these laws say is that buildings have to rate how well they perform. Uh, using the Energy Star system, which is uh, the American system run by the United States Energy Environmental Protection Agency, EPA. Um, and it's a free tool that's been widely used on a voluntary basis going back to the late 1990s. And uh, it uh, compares buildings to their peers and it adjusts for things like weather and also how many people are in the building, how, what are the operating hours of the building. So it's really giving you an apples to apples comparison of buildings uh, against themselves over time and against their peers. And, and it gives buildings a 1 to 100 score, where 100 is best and 1 is worst. It also measures things like greenhouse gas emissions and energy use intensity. 
Um, so these benchmarking and transparency laws require that buildings have to use that, that free system. They have to generate that 1 to 100 score and some other information like greenhouse gas emissions usually and publish that for the world to see. So in all these jurisdictions, you can go uh, on, uh, see a map of all the buildings in uh, the jurisdiction. I should say most of them. Occasionally there are some where you have to sort of download a spreadsheet of addresses and scores. Um, but you get to see how these buildings are performing. Is this a, a, a great building, a, a 99 building, or a really poor performing building, a two or a three, for instance? And uh, that is informing the market. So that if you're going to lease in a building, if you're going to invest in a building, uh, you have a virtuous cycle of competition where you want higher performing buildings, you're willing to pay more for a higher performing building, and that gives the building owner an incentive to invest to make that building better so they can attract and retain tenants so that they can get that investment. So that's benchmarking and transparency laws. The first one, as I said, was in DC in 2008, um, and they've been steadily growing with more and more jurisdictions adopting them. Um, but they don't require performance. They require right. disclosure of performance, but you could disclose that you have an Energy Star score of one, the worst score possible, and that's it. That's, you've you've uh, complied with the law, uh, and that they produced uh, improvements. You know, many sort of studies found sort of two and a half percent per year reduction in energy use when you have these benchmarking and transparency laws in place. But that's not enough. That's not on the, the pace that we need to meet the decarbonization goals. Many jurisdictions have goals around like fifty percent reduction in greenhouse gas emissions right. by twenty thirty, uh, you know, net zero by twenty fifty, and Nothing that they had done, including these laws, had put them on pace to achieve those kinds of commitments. And so they needed something stronger that would um, accelerate the rate of improvement. And that led uh, jurisdictions, again, starting with Washington, D.C. in 2018, to adopt building performance standards, which not only they're built on top of these benchmarking and transparency laws, they use the Energy Star program to measure how well buildings are performing, but they also set minimum performance requirements um, with consequences for not achieving those minimum levels of performance. Totally. And you said 40 state and local governments-ish are now on board with that higher level of stringency. Is that kind of where we're at today? More than 40 jurisdictions have these benchmarking and transparency laws. Collectively, it's uh, well over 11 billion square feet of space. So it's a, a real significant part of the economy. And it also tends to correlate with some of the highest real estate values. Places like Austin, Texas, and uh, California, and New York, and Washington, and Denver, and Chicago, Maryland. So you have a lot of high value real estate areas that have these laws, as well as you know, places um, that are you know, Kansas City, which is a great um, market, but you know, there's some more value to be had there. Yeah, we, we hosted a Nexus Happy Hour in St. Louis last week, and we had the city's benchmarking administrator, benchmarking performance administrator, Malachi. He was at the happy hour. So uh, shout out to the, the St. Louis folks. Um, cool. So those are the kind of the four energy cones, electrification, benchmarking, performance standards that I kind of have always thought are, you know, the, the key to this, right? Um, what other ones, what other, what other categories are important in terms of policy levers that we should touch on before we kind of zoom into to performance standard? Sure. Well, we talk broadly about building performance policies, and that includes everything from the most common and perhaps the lightest touch of benchmarking and transparency laws all the way through 
um, the most powerful um, of building performance standards. But in between, you have things like uh, audit requirements and re building retuning requirements, um, where you're requiring periodic energy audits to identify uh, opportunities to improve the performance of the building. And, and typically, um, you are exempting from that requirement very high-performing buildings. Uh, and similarly, retuning laws, where you're uh, looking at you know, the, the highest-performing buildings are exempt. The other buildings have to bring in engineers periodically, like a you know, five-year basis, to look at opportunities to improve the performance of the building. And that's about not about capital improvements. That's about making sure that the systems are operating as designed. And, okay. and unfortunately, very often, buildings are not operating as designed, and so you can get a really good return on investment for retuning. Um, and so those are a couple of policies. There's also building labeling. Uh, New York City and Chicago yeah. have these laws, uh, and that actually involves requiring buildings to display in their lobby um, a letter grade, or in the case of Chicago, a, a number of stars, with four stars being the best, which actually winds up with the Chicago flag. Um, and that's a, a, a more powerful message to the market so that anybody walking through that lobby, including tenants, is immediately sort of alerted to the performance of the building, similar to letter grades for, um, for restaurants, uh, you know, sanitation that places like New York City have had in place for a long time and do drive behavior. I mean, you see, uh, I if I see a, build, a restaurant that has a C grade, I'm usually going to keep on walking. I'm going to look for a, a restaurant with an A grade. Um, and similarly, the, the hope is that, and I think we're seeing some early indications that, that tenants and others will similarly want high-performing buildings. When they see it right there in the lobby, they'll ask questions of the owner, and that will prompt the owner to make improvements. Totally. How about things like, um, I know, I know a big piece of even enabling a benchmarking program is getting access to the data itself. Are there any, um, is there any legislation around simply making, forcing the utility to share data in a, in a meaningful, accessible way? Yes, there is. Um, it's certainly a best practice, and we have other jurisdictions that have done that, either through legislation or through action by the regulator of the utility, which is usually called the Public Utility Commission or Public Service Commission, requiring the utilities to do that and, and uh, rewarding them for doing that. Um, so, And then you have a number of utilities that have done this voluntarily. Sometimes they did it because they were required to do it in one jurisdiction, and they said, you know what, we're just going to do this across our entire territory, which may span several states. Um, and so there is a map that the US EPA maintains where you can see all of the utilities that will provide whole building data access to building owners. And this is much more of an issue in tenanted buildings where the tenants are receiving utility bills directly from the utility. And the building owner doesn't see those bills at all. Because in order to Energy Star benchmark a building, you need to know how much building is being used across the entire building, including the tenant spaces. And that means that you need to put data from all of the utility meters in that building into the Energy Star right. system. And so it's easy if you own the building and there's only one meter and then you just take the data from that meter, you take the data from your utility bills and you put it in on a monthly basis. But if you need to get the data from your tenants, that can be a chore, especially in, in apartment buildings where you can have you know, 100 tenants and it's just impractical to try and get data from all of them. So in that context, uh, having a utility that will take all the data together for all of the um, occupants and tenants in that building uh, and upload it directly into the Energy Star system, that's a huge benefit. It makes it much more practical for building owners to know how they're performing so that they can uh, look uh, across their portfolio and see opportunities for good investments, and also so they can comply with these benchmarking laws and, and other laws that look at building performance. Totally. But you're saying there are, there are like actual 
policies kind of like there are laws there are laws okay the jurisdiction at the same time that they pass a benchmarking law will require It'll, the utilities okay. to provide the data nice. now, one of the challenges is that a lot of these benchmarking laws have been passed at the local level but utilities are usually regulated at the state level so that's one of the, the reasons that why we're particularly eager to work at the state level because the states um, regulate the utilities and it's very easy for them to require utilities to provide this data kind of bridge that gap also requirements around providing real-time data. Uh, and this data is very valuable um, for like solar installers when they're making the business case to um, owners about um, why they should invest in solar panels on their roof, say. Um, and so there are a lot of use cases for this data. This data belongs to the ratepayers. It's the mm -hmm. people that are paying for the utility service that own that data. But um, sometimes utilities treat it as like, no, you know, we want to keep this in a black box and monetize yeah. it and not make it easy for the owner to share with anybody else. So um, liberating this data um, and enabling it to drive transformation in the buildings and in the market is a big part of our strategy. And we've had some success there. Great. Last question is around leasing. Are you able to actually sort of work the green? You guys do a lot of work in green leasing. Are you able to work those um, pieces into these different laws? Um, typically, leasing is something that isn't really regulated. It's a you, you know governments, of course, uh, lead by example with their own leases. So we right. want, and we have a lot of governments, including the the federal government, um, that uh, have green leases where they're saying, you know, we want X, Y, and Z um, uh, in the lease so that the landlord and the tenant are going to be both performing better when the the uh, building is a high performance building. Um, but uh, we have not seen you know, jurisdictions that have said when you have two private parties, a landlord and tenant that are signing a lease, that they need to have a green lease that's going to align their incentives. But what we are seeing is things like building performance standards, which um, have real consequences for non-performance. And if they're designed properly, those consequences will flow to the people that are driving low performance in buildings. And that's not just the owner. The tenants play an important role, especially commercial tenants. So you, you want to have, and we've, our model, we have a model building performance standard law, um, which uh, aligns incentives. So both the tenants and the landlords have skin in the game. So mm -hmm. they'll want to set performance targets. All right, this building is required to perform this well. Let's develop a plan for how that building will perform this well. And then let's allocate responsibilities. And the owner, of course, is going to be the leader uh, in doing that. And the owner is going to be making improvements to the buildings. But the tenants, through their own behavior and through providing access to their spaces and through potentially helping to finance improvements to the building, they are going to be an important part of the solution as well. And everybody needs to be incented to work together to have high-performing buildings. So while these building performance standards, if they're designed properly, they align incentives between the landlord and the tenant, but they don't directly require anything in the lease. But it creates a win-win opportunity. Even without that, there's a win-win. It creates an even bigger win-win for landlords and tenants to sign these green leases um, that help them work together and to, to have really good communication. Makes, makes a ton of sense. So let's zoom in on um, building performance standards itself a little bit. So we started to a little bit there. Can you talk about, um, you know, we talked about, you know, 40 plus jurisdictions. Um, if I'm a building, por like a portfolio owner, and I got buildings everywhere, and I'm not sure, quite sure how this is going to impact me. What would you say to them to help them understand where this is headed in the future? Well, what I would say is uh, buildings are, you know, the, 
uh, one of the top two drivers of greenhouse gas emissions. You have jurisdictions around the country that have committed to decarbonize their economy and buildings have to be a foundational part of that. So the buildings are going to have to perform better and um, the jurisdictions are going to push to make that happen and building owners need to be part of that solution and they need to, to be working to uh, make sure that these policies recognize real estate realities um, and these policies are going to happen. You already have them in you know, 11 jurisdictions around North America, including some of the biggest jurisdictions like New York City, um, like um, you know, Boston, Washington, D.C., the states of Colorado and um, Washington State and, and Maryland. So you, they're already in place in lots of places. You have also um, President Biden has a building performance standard coalition, which he announced back in January 2021. Um, sorry, January 2022, and um, that includes 37 jurisdictions, including other big ones like California, that are all committing to either they already have building performance standards in place or they're committing to have them in place by Earth Day of 2024. Uh, and so you can look at that map, uh, which is nationalbpscoalition.org, and see all those jurisdictions. But even if you own buildings that aren't in any of those jurisdictions, this is the direction the market is going. This is the direction governments are going. So you need to plan, you need to future-proof your buildings by planning to have these policies in place everywhere. So adapt, and it's, you know, companies typically have a single policy in place across the board, across their portfolio. So gov companies need to govern their portfolio as though there's building performance standards everywhere and, and be pushing their buildings towards high performance, develop long-term capital improvement plans for all of your buildings to be decarbonizing over the next 15, 20 plus years. And, um, and you'll be rewarded. Increasingly, you're gonna have these policies in place, but you're also just having investors that are recognizing that high performance buildings are a better opportunity, a better business opportunity. They're willing to, to have lower capitalization rates, pay higher prices for these buildings. You have tenants that want these buildings. So, you know, Design your, your corporate policies in the expectation that these building performance standards are going to be everywhere across the country and know that even if you know, they take longer in some jurisdictions than others to materialize, you're still positioning yourself for the future and to profit. Totally. And this is something that the, the capital plan piece is something I've talked about on, on the, the show quite a bit. And I, I've, been, I've been pleasantly surprised with the, the progress lately in terms of hearing a lot of building owners talk about, okay, here are our exact plans. Um, we couldn't say that like a year ago, really. It was mostly like, we have this target and we know these standards are happening and we know that we're going to have to improve, but we're, we don't exactly know how we're going to get there. And I've seen quite a few leading organizations, especially at Green Build this past fall, a couple different building owner organizations saying like, these are the retrofits we're doing them. And these are the order we're doing them in. And like, it, it was very impressive to hear some of these presentations. So I feel like I want to like give a little PSA around just some hope there that that's happening more and more, which is great, great to hear. I'm sure you're seeing something similar. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I mean, which isn't to say that there aren't lots of jurisdictions, lots of, sorry, uh, building owners that are still, you know, their capital plan this year looks a lot like their capital plan last year and five <laughs> yeah. years ago. Um, but increasingly, the, the leaders, the ones that uh, are best managed are planning for the future and planning for a decarbonizing future. And you, you see investors recognize that it's really hard to assess um, the quality of management. 
and um, some investors are using uh, the, the sustainability performance of real estate owners as a heuristic for the quality of management because that's actually measurable. You can see what the average Energy Star score across the portfolio is, what kind of capital plans they have, that their capital plans recognize the building performance standards that are already in place and their plans. Uh, and if you see a management team that's doing a good job on that, that's a good indication that they're doing a good job on other things as well that are maybe less measurable. Uh, and so um, we see that the top management teams are increasingly building this into their capital plans and really leaning forward. Yeah. One of the things that I've been wondering about, and you're the perfect person to ask, is that with New York going first and then other cities kind of following behind, what lessons have been learned in these kind of leading cities that are going to be then implemented in the rollout in, in the future cities? Do you have any stories, any, any examples from, from these leading cities? Sure. Uh, well, and we have more experience with the, the benchmarking and transparency laws that have been around longer. Uh, you know, one interesting story is from Chicago, where they um, have a, a regular cycle. All of these benchmark and transparency laws are on an annual cycle. There's, you know, buildings have to benchmark annually and submit it annually. And then those buildings that didn't submit uh, get reminders uh, and potentially have, you know, to pay penalties if they don't. Um, and that drives um, investment in building performance. And um, what we heard in Chicago was the building owner, the uh, contractors, you know, the engineering firms, the, the firms that are doing energy audits, the firms that are manufacturing better lighting and other products to make buildings better, they were timing, they're timing their marketing, they're timing their whole sales push around these cycles of benchmarking and transparency loss because they know that every time that, you know, building owners get a reminder of their upcoming uh, benchmarking requirements, every time those building owners get a reminder that they haven't complied with those that haven't, that drives a big spike in um, sales calls and in, in, in building owners calling up and looking for solutions. And so, you know, it's a tangible example of the, the market moving power of, of even a benchmarking and tra transparency law, which is, of course, a pretty light touch as compared to a building performance standard. So we do see, you know, real examples of market change um, on the ground um, in jurisdictions that have these policies. We also see some lessons learned, you know, some policies um, that have, you know, opportunities for improvement. And, and that's one of the reasons a number of jurisdictions that were working on building performance standards came to us and they said, we want help. Uh, you know, can you write a sort of a model law for building performance standards? And we took all of the best elements of all the building performance standards that had already been adopted and some of the lessons learned opportunities for improvement. And we put that into a, a, this model law, which is available for free download from our website. It's imt.org slash BPS. And, um, and then we engaged with a number of stakeholders, with equity stakeholders, folks, community-based organizations, equity experts, with uh, jurisdictions themselves that were uh, implementing existing laws uh, as well as developing new ones. And importantly, with building owners uh, and service providers to say, all right, you know, how can we take into account real estate realities uh, and create a law that doesn't just sound good, but will really make a difference on the ground and minimize unintended consequences. And for instance, we got 25 pages of comments on our model law, on our draft model law, oh, wow. the real estate roundtable, which is some of the biggest, that's just one of many, many groups that, that gave us feedback. But, you know, the biggest building owners recognize that this policy is going to be, you know, driving change across the many jurisdictions where they own buildings. And so, you know, we had a really 
positive engagement and it improved the draft and, and it's a living document. It's constantly evolving to represent best practice. But recognizing that you know, commercial tenants are an important part of the problem and they need to be an important part of the solution. Uh, recognizing that affordable housing lacks uh, capital and you can't require affordable housing to make improvements without providing the resources to improve. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you don't want to exempt affordable housing because that's leaving the residents behind, leaving them out of the benefits of higher performing buildings. So there's a whole series of um, lessons learned from these laws around the country. Recognizing that you want to reward density, reward buildings that are operating long hours and, and you know, getting a lot of production out of a limited footprint of building space. So um, a lot of these lessons learned are reflected in both our model law and we've also recently published an implementation guide for how you implement building performance standards. And we're actually going to be doing a series of uh, webinars starting on January 26th um, that go through um, best practices for implementing building performance standards targeted mostly at governments that are in the position of implementing, but also very valuable for service providers and building owners that you know, are operating in markets with building performance standards. Brilliant. Yeah, such an important role you guys are playing. How can um, anyone listening to this sort of get involved? Can they join the coalition or how, how does it work if, if people want to make sure that their voice is heard or they want to, you know, you know, play some role in pushing legislation forward? How, how does that work? Sure. Well, there's, you know, if, if you're a government, we'd love for you to join the coalition. Um, the, the main thing is that you're committing to uh, put in place equitable building performance standards, working with your frontline communities, uh, and you're going to have building performance standards or similar policies in place by Earth Day 2024. And again, that's uh, nationalbpscoalition.org. There's a, a place to um, send an email saying, yes, we want to join the coalition. If you're a company, uh, there are a variety of opportunities. You know, if you're in the business of leasing or um, being a, a, a landlord, um, then encourage you, if you're not already, to look at the Green Lease Leaders Program to um, get recognized for putting in win-win green leases. Uh, also, you know, we have governments that are directly supporting our work, trying to push legislation uh, and other uh, just sort of best practices around decarbonizing buildings and, and equitable decarbonization. Uh, and we have something we call the corporate um, the corporate uh, engagement opportunity program, CEO program, uh, and that is a program for companies that want to keep current on these decarbonization policies, on these opportunities, and that want to support our work financially. Um, and uh, and then um, there are a number of companies that we work with on an informal basis. That, you know, um, governments always respond to employers. And if a company is in the business of making buildings better, whether that's through innovative products or technologies or services, um, their voice um, is loud in, in the, at the local level. And, and we've had a lot of success working with companies that say, look, I'm in the business of making buildings better. If you pass this law, it will create more demand for my services. I'll hire more people locally, create jobs for residents. That's a message that uh, legislators want to hear, and, and we work with companies to deliver those messages. Uh, I'd imagine there's a lot of those people listening to this this episode, so I apologize if you get a lot of people reaching out to you, Cliff. <laughs> no, that's what I want. Send them my way. Uh, floodgates are open. Cliff's, Cliff's inbox. Um, well, thanks, Cliff, and, and thanks just in general to you and all your colleagues for this such an important work um, that's sort of upstream of a lot of 
a lot of our listeners work is downstream of what you guys are doing to sort of make the, the actual, uh, progress happen before, before they get involved. So thank you. Uh, it's awesome. Let's end with some, just some carve outs, any, any books, podcasts, documentaries, et cetera, that you have had, you know, have had a big impact on you lately. Um, yeah, I, I really enjoy sort of on the ground practitioner perspective. So I like the house whisperers, um, you know, sort of analysis of what decarbonization is going to look like for, at the sort of ground level. Okay. Um, and I enjoy listening to the Energy Gang podcasts, um, you know, thinking about sort of the broader economy and the grid. Um, and then just for, for a laugh, and, and I love uh, Ted Lasso. I've been watching Ted Lasso. Um, uh, and, uh, trying to model some of my behavior on some of what he does. Yeah. Yeah. He's a, he's a model guy. Uh, I have a friend that reminds me of Ted Lasso and he, he, he had, it had been a long time since I had watched the show. And then I just kept ribbing him, ribbing him, ribbing him. And he like, you have to watch this. And he finally did. And he was like, yeah, now, now I understand why you wanted me to watch that. Cause he's like, it's like kind of like who he is already. Um. Well, that's cool. That's cool. I'll have to check out the house whisper because I feel like I need some, uh, sort of therapy around how hard it's been to get my house towards decarbonization with the, the local supply chain where I'm at is kind of like, kind of feels like pushing a boulder up a hill a little bit. So maybe there's some episodes that will help me sort of work through that, that process on, on the house whisper. Yeah, I, I think we're going to see rapid change in that space. The Inflation Reduction Act, which passed mm -hmm. last year, is going to create a ton of new business opportunities for heat pump installation and things like that. So unfortunately, though, there's going to be huge demand and it may take a while for the workforce and the yeah. contractor community to catch up to that. Yeah. And for those of you that are wondering, that are listening to this and heard me talk about my water heater like a year ago, it's still in the same place. Because of exactly what Cliff just said, I feel like I'm waiting for my local supply chain to sort of catch up with. I just hope that my, my water heater doesn't die. It's 18, 19 years old now. And I'm like, I really want a heat pump, but I, I, I need somebody to help me with it. So I'm kind of where I'm at. I'm, I'm in a holding pattern, essentially. There was a really cool technology that actually was the winning technology at the Verge conference that, where we saw each other. Um, called Harvest Thermal, which is pairing heat pumps and water heaters oh, cool. um, so that you can um, store hot water and potentially in the future cold water at off-peak times with, with low-carbon electricity and use that to heat your house at peak times. Makes sense. Uh, and also, of course, it's you know heating your house directly through the air at, at other times. So it's a great concept, um, and we need, to, we need that kind of innovation, um, recognizing that... Uh, you know, the, the ways we, we used to do things doesn't work, but there's ways to win-win in terms of both for the climate and for lowering utility bills and for more comfortable spaces with innovative technologies. Awesome. Well, again, thank you, Cliff, and thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, James. Great talking. All right, friends, thanks for listening to this episode of the Nexus Podcast. For more episodes like this and to get the weekly Nexus newsletter, which, by the way, readers have said is the best way to stay up to date on the future of the smart building industry, please subscribe at nexuslabs.online. You can find the show notes for this conversation there as well. Have a great day.